Good morning, everyone. Good to have you back with us today as our final lesson in the study of the book of 1 John. We are in chapter 5 today and we'll be finishing up. My section will end and another teacher will begin. But I hope you've enjoyed the study of uh, this first epistle, 1 John. John is such a great, great Christian and great, great writer. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation, all of them are tremendous books and have tremendous insight into the spiritual nature of what it really means to be a Christian. And this last chapter of the book of 1 John is no exception to that rule. This particular chapter offers a whole lot of information. Now my hope and prayer to all of you is that this is just the beginning of your study of 1 John. I hope that you will take time to read it Read it again and again and again. Because I promise you that if you do, you'll start growing to a depth of your own personal spirituality that maybe you've never really thought about before. Because of the great spiritual truths that are so easy to understand. John is a simple writer. I'm a simple listener. And it's really good to read a simple writer. But his... Wonderful points are just so powerful, they change your life once you really start adopting them. Now, if we read the Bible just like uh, somebody casually reading a a novel and we're not really interested in growing from it, it's just fun. It's still a good book. But if you really want to gain a lot spiritually, then let me encourage you to think and pray as you go through the book of 1 John. Stop every once in a while and just offer a prayer when you realize that your life is not matched up, maybe with the way that you know it should, or maybe you're just thankful for the fact that we have the precious promises that we do in Christ because they are enormous. Well, as we begin the fifth chapter of the uh, book of 1 John, I'd like to read the first couple of verses for you just to get us rolling And then we'll make comments on them. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. It'd be difficult to unpack all that's in that one verse if we spent a whole quarter talking about those principles. But John lays out here the very basics of what it really means. It begins with faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. If we don't believe that, then the rest of what we believe religiously is Not worth a lot. There are a lot of religions today, even those religions that call them Christians' religion, that don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. They don't believe that Jesus was actually from God. They just think he was a great teacher. And their churches are based upon that. Sad. But here John, again, elevates Jesus and his teaching to something very glorious And he says that the conclusion of our studying is, if you'll look at verse 2, that the process by which we read through this and meditate on it is, by this we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and keep his commandments. One of the great principles that John always focused on was love. We not only are taught to love each other, but the beginning of loving each other begins with a true commitment to God, that we truly love God, that we truly love his word. So beginning in verse 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. These verses here, beginning verse 2 through 5, form a little capsule of what it really means to be what God wants us to be. God wants us to respond to his love for us by our loving him, and the way we demonstrate that love for him is that we keep his commandments and love one another. Have you ever thought about what it really means to love others the way that God loves us? We take that for granted a lot of times. We think loving others is just having, you know, some sort of goodwill toward one another and saying hi when you get to church and, or, you know, not doing anything mean to them. Uh, just, but just let them go their way and we go our way. And that's, that's love. Well, thank the Lord that was not God's love for us. God's love for us reached his pinnacle when he knew and was willing to do the only thing that could save us. The only thing that could save us. And that he would die for us. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to take our punishment. By his stripes, we are healed. He came to take our punishment. Now that is love. When I think of somebody willing to go to that extreme for me, I think that's love. That, I mean, if a man volunteered to go to an electric chair, that would be showing a lot of great love, but not the love that Jesus showed. Joe. Jesus took my place, in essence, at the eternal judgment and took my punishment on his back. Oh, that we could love that way. And the way we do that is by using that love to help us overcome the influences of the world. Verse 4, for whatsoever or whosoever is born of God over cometh the world and this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith when our faith grows stronger we begin to be able to see beyond just our back doorsteps we begin to see those around us who are in need and we know that because Jesus loved us loved me it stimulates me to emulate him It makes me want to be like him. Now, how can I be like Jesus? 
not the Son of God. No, but you and I can do what he did. We can go out of our way to bring spiritual life to those around us. Isn't it a wonderful thought that we can bring Jesus to the world? That we can teach about him as what we're doing in this class. And get others to likewise want to be like Jesus. Want to give themselves to him. And that is what pleases God. Do you love him? If you do, does it show Some have said in times past in my presence preaching that if you were brought before a judge and your crime was supposed to be that of a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or would you get off, as they used to say, scot-free because there was not the evidence in your life that you were a child of His. But, as verse 5 says, those who overcome the world, the one who is that, are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a foundational principle that I don't need to expound upon, other than the fact is that our place in this world is first and foremost to get others to understand that the Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God and that He came to save us all. We're being faithful to Jesus when that is our primary mission. Now, there are a lot of things that come off of that that we've even talked about up to this point about what it means to be loving others and all of that. But the first and foremost principle is the fact that if we love God like Jesus loved God, we want to make sure that those around us are able to spend eternity with God also by accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior and obeying His will. The next few verses introduce some other interesting things for us. Verse 6 beginning, This is He that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Just stopping here just a second, there's always been some confusion as to what exactly does John have in mind. I personally believe that what he has reference to here in verse 5 and verse 6 is the water that demonstrated Jesus being a son of God at his baptism when God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is my opinion, what the water is. And on the other hand, is the other end of Jesus' life or his ministry, the blood. One of the principal testimonies that Jesus came to save us was that his willingness to suffer so much and then die on the cross and his blood be shed As one of our songs says, that blood is spilt. Jesus spilt his blood deliberately, purposely, that you and I could have life. If you preached nothing else the rest of your life, if you just told everybody that you knew, 
that Jesus died for them. He spilt his blood for them so that you and I, the world, would accept his Father and become children of his. That's what it's all about. So, as we said, this is, this is the, the water and the blood is the demonstration of that. Not water only, but water and blood. So, let's begin reading verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. We'll pause there for a minute. And here, it shouldn't be difficult for most of us who have studied the the Bible to know that there are three in heaven. God is one, but God is three persons in one. Now, do I understand that? Nah, never will. I've tried all my life to sort of fit it together, but just can't do it. I, many of you have seen the symbol that grows almost like a triangle, but the point of it never breaks anywhere. It makes a perfect triangle, like three leaves on a plant, but in no place is that line cut. And that has been used in some religious groups as a symbol of God himself, that God is three persons. But there was a change when the son offered himself to take the punishment for us. The spirit came to give evidence of that, not only through preaching through Jesus, but that of the apostles and others. So these three agree in one. All three, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, they all are out for one purpose. That's for you to be saved, for me to be saved. There are three that bear record, the Father, the Son, and, or the Word as he describes it here in seven, and the Holy Ghost. And the, there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. There have been a lot of discussions to what these three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, but it seems to me they tie back into what he just said. The Holy Spirit of God presents the gospel through the apostles and through other inspired writers and now as we preach the word. And yet at the same time, the water of life is the very Son of God whom we serve. He is the water of life. And he demonstrated that by his shedding his blood on the cross. And all of these principles, they agree in one. Jesus Christ came into the world at God's command to save sinners, of whom, as Paul said, I am chief. When you get down to verse 9, there's a section here, a couple of verses here, and I'd like to read those next. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son, on the Son of God, hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God, hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record God gave of his Son. 
There is within this both a blessing and a curse, if you please. We have witnesses, the, the apostles and prophets, both of the Old Testament and New Testament, provide for us a witness. Even the record of pagans about Jesus having come is a witness. But the point is, is what do we do when we have a witness in a trial court? The question is, is do we believe the witness or not believe the witness? God sent his son to be a witness that was so clear and so plain that our eternal life depends on our recognizing his role as the witness of God. To tell us how we are to live and what we are to do and how the way to heaven is through him. Through our obedience to Jesus Christ and our willingness to die and in essence to sin and be buried as he was buried in the watery grave of baptism and rise as he arose from the watery grave of baptism as he did from the earth. In doing those things, if we accept those things, we accept the witness of Jesus. If we don't, then the witness is going to be against us on the day of judgment. Because it says, because he believeth, he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not the record God gave his son. You know, it's a serious thing to call anybody a liar. In many cases, it'll get you a bloody nose if you just call the wrong person a liar. It'll get you in trouble even in your family. If you call your wife a liar or she call her husband a liar. It's, it's, you know, that's serious business for most of us to call somebody a liar. Because it says a lot about our moral character if you call a person a liar. And usually the result of calling somebody a liar out in the world is you get a bloody nose as a result of it. Because nobody wants to be called a liar. But that's what we do in essence. We make God a liar when we decide that we don't need to believe in Jesus. We're not worried about believing in Jesus. We're not worried about going to heaven if there even is a heaven. Sadly, the world is condemning itself by what they don't do as much as what they do. Yes, sin will destroy us. If we willfully sin, that's going to be the basis of our judgment anyway. But it is also a sin when we reject God's testimony through His Son. Verse 11 then says, and going along with this, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. I love the phrase that God hath given to us eternal life. Now I know that usually we think about eternal life as being something after we die here. But the truth is, the part of us that really matters, our spirits, if we have obeyed the gospel, if we have accepted Jesus Christ and followed his instructions to become what he wants us to be, then the truth is, we have eternal life here. I think sometimes we get hung up in the word eternal. 
because we're, we think of it more in a timeline. The point is, all that God gives us is eternal. He gives us his life, which by its very nature is eternal life. And he has provided that eternal life by the willing sacrifice of his son. And this life is in his son. And he concludes that thought in verse 12 by saying, He that hath the Son, he that hath the Son, hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God, hath not life. Could we be any clearer than that by any expression that we can make that if we do not have life through Jesus Christ, then there's no other road to heaven. If Jesus did not come and bring us life, and if we've not accepted that life, there's only one other alternative. That's to die without that life. To be eternally dead to God. To be eternally separated, which is what death means. To be eternally separated from God. And the sad thing is that occurs after God has done all he has to try to keep that from happening. God is certainly not some ogre. He is not some vicious, mean-spirited spirit sitting up on the backside of who knows where and waiting for us to make a mistake so he can catch it, aha, and slam us into hell. That is such a terrible, terrible lie. The God of the universe proved his love for us by giving us his son. And if we will accept his son, he that hath life, he that hath the son hath life. If we have the son, we have the promise of life eternal. Life not only here, but when we pass from this life to the next, we have life that continues. This is all transitory here. Living in this world is just a period of time. Some die as babies even before they're born. All abortion's a horrible thing, and many of these babies are, you know, are killed every day. I think about a million and a half a year. But the only good that I know comes from that is that they are safe from the beginning. They've never sinned. Their souls are secure. And for all the harm that it does to the world to have these children killed. I think maybe if they were brought up in some of the homes of the mothers who are having them aborted, might be their eternal loss. But this death that we have to experience here is the introduction, is our introduction to the life that is to come. And so verse 13 provides what I think is probably the central theme of this whole chapter. Maybe you could say the whole book of 1 John. Listen very carefully to verse 13 of 1 John 5. John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know... Let me read that again. That ye may know... Let me read it one more time. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. 
I think it's sad, truly sad, that so many of us live daily with the doubt that we'll go to heaven. We've not read the Bible enough to know the promises. We've, we've come up with the same kind of thing the world is. If you do this, this, and this, and so we parents them and say, then I'll give you the lollipop. I think sometimes we've treated Christianity the same way. We've lived it more like a plus and minus thing. You get a plus for doing this and a minus for doing that, and hopefully at the end of life the pluses will outdo the minuses. But that's such a twisted version of what life in Christ is all about. Life in Christ is one of the greatest joys it can be because we live every day with a confident assurance that as we trust in the Lord and Him alone, not on our own strength, but His alone, Through His Son, Jesus Christ, we have life. Let me read this passage one more time for you. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. One other verb in here is a present tense verb. It says that you you have eternal life. We oftentimes think of the word eternal as being a timeline. You know, on and on and on and on and on is eternal. Not denying that that's an idea behind the word eternal. But in this verse, it's obvious that John views life with God by its very nature, since it's with God through Jesus Christ, that its very existence is eternal. I wish that we as Christians could have greater confidence in our relationship with God and and our soul salvation. That we could really believe the Bible, when we have done what it said to be saved. And we walk every day with the confidence that that should bring us. And yet I'm well aware, been there myself, that it is so easy for us to sometimes begin to doubt the power of God to save me. We sometimes, because we've made so many mistakes along the way, we fail to be what God wants us to be so many times that we ultimately come to the conclusion that God doesn't want me. That He will not welcome me in on that judgment day. I do not want to imply that we can't lose our soul salvation by turning our backs on the Lord. Some in Jesus' day went back and walked no more with, with Jesus. Some even did, you know, the, even the worst things, betray Him to have Him crucified. But I believe that for the Christian who has got his heart set on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost who seeks each day to live for them is stumbling and is mistakenly and is pitifully sometimes as we are that we can lay our heads down every night and know like the child said if I I pray that if I should die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take when you go to sleep at night 
do you have confidence that if you died tonight, you would go to heaven? I urge all of you that don't feel that, that you dig deeper into the Word of God. Talk to the elders or some others about your spiritual condition and see if there's things that need to be believed or done to give you that confidence that I know all of us really want. He goes on to say in verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. You know, it's a great thing to know in this world where there's so much bad stuff going on, there's so many dangers out there, um, financial dangers, personal dangers. There are just so many different things in the world that give us a feeling of uneasiness. What a wonderful thing it is to know that no matter what our situation, God hears us. And when we ask Him, we trust and can trust Him to give us what we ask. Now, I think it's a mistake here, reading verse 14 or 15, that God is merely a vending machine. You know, if you want this, you pray God and get that. If you want this, you pray to God and you get that. And that's not what this is talking about at all. The thing is, is this confidence that we will have the salvation now and in the future that we've given our life to through Jesus Christ. And this is the promise we don't have to worry about. We have that position. We are saved today. Sometimes we get to think we'll be saved when we get to heaven. But again, I emphasize that salvation is ours today if we're his children. We can walk today and say, I'm a child of God. I'm on the road to heaven. And I am saddened that there's so many of us out in the world who go to church every Sunday, but who don't feel that way at all. They have so many doubts and so many fears, mostly because they haven't read the book. And they haven't read the book because maybe they have reason sometimes to have doubts. In other words, they've never given up the world. They've never given up living for Satan. They do like the atheists. You heard about the atheists in town, in this small town. And whenever they had the church building to burn down in town... They started building it back, and guess who was there helping them build it back? <laughs> it was the atheist. And it puzzled everybody. They just couldn't believe an atheist would come out and help them build back church building. Well, the, finally, one of them just couldn't stand any longer, and he says, I know you don't believe in God. I know you don't believe in this Christianity stuff. You don't believe in going to church. So why in the world are you helping us build back the church building? The guy sort of paused a second. And then he said, probably truthfully as it can be, I just wanted to get a little fire insurance before I die. Now obviously, there's no fire insurance in building back a church building. It's in giving our life to Jesus Christ. Verse 16. Let's move down to verse 16. Our time is getting away from us. 
And it says, and if any man see his brother, this is changing the topics here, uh, that this, we, we get our petitions, verse 15, if we know that we hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desire of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Been a lot of discussions about this verse over the year, and I would not pretend that I was smarter than all the others and could unravel it for you. But I believe there is great confidence and great blessings in reading and believing this verse. If we are willing to see our brother in need, and if we are willing to help him who we see is not just deliberately and willfully sinning, we not only save that soul, but we save ourselves with him. Because God blesses those who blesses others. God deepens the faith of those who deepen the faith of others. The question is, is what do we do? Now, if we see people who are out there willfully sinning, it is not appropriate for us to be saying God saved them in that sin. Oh, I think it's appropriate for us to pray for them. But we should pray that God would help us save them from their sin. That God would help help us to reach them some way with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only thing that can save us. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for us and our belief in it is the only thing that can save us. We can't manually take somebody, throw them onto a pew, and make them a Christian. I heard a man tell one time, sitting on a pew in the church building will not make you any more a Christian than sitting in a chicken house will make you a chicken. Just going to church, just going through the motions is not Christianity. But sometimes we put our faith in that. It's called churchianity. You go to church and you'll be saved because you go to church. Not true. It is faith and obedience to Jesus Christ as the Son of God that will save us, not sitting in a church building. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. All unrighteousness is sin. No doubt about it. Anything that we do that's against the will of God is sin. There's no big I's and little U's. There's no big sins and little sins. Every sin is a rebellion against God. When we willfully do that which we know is not according to God's will, we put our souls in jeopardy. But there's hope. When we do not sin deliberately and we're looking for hope, there is hope. People who sin and yet are seeking to do the will of God have the confidence, the promise that the blood of Jesus Christ 
keeps on keeping on, cleansing us from our sins. You see, the child of God is always penitent. That is, he realizes every day of his life that he is not what he ought to be. So he's sinning by omission. Every day he lives, he knows he says and does things that some of the things that God would not have him do. So he sins by commission. But we can live every day with confidence as children of God. That if I die suddenly, if God were to strike you down dead where you are right now, that we can live with confidence in our heavenly home being ours. But so many of us don't live with that confidence. But he says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now what does that mean? You remember the ETH that I've been talking about during this course of study? Sin that keeps on sinning. Maybe I'll translate it this way. We know that whosoever is born of God does not keep on keeping on sinning. But he that is begotten of God keepeth on keeping himself so that he might be touched by that wicked one. Every day we live, we sin in some way, no doubt. Either commission or omission. But those who are seeking to keep on keeping on, walking in the light day after day, should not walk with their head hung down, but should walk with confidence that the Lord God sees us being cleansed continually by the overflow of the blood of Christ for the sins that we commit. If that's not true, none of us will be saved. Verse 19, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. There's a difference between us and the world. If you're a child of God, you're not of the world. The world around us that rejects God, that rejects God's Son, is lying in wickedness. They are in wickedness. They are doomed eternally now, not just on the day of judgment. They are doomed now, and their only hope is us, that we might get the gospel to them, and that they might believe it and obey it, and leave their wickedness to be faithful to God. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. As we close this series on 1 John, we are left with this great promise and great statement of faith in verse 20. And we know, notice that again, and we know that the Son of God has come. Do you believe that? That's part of what being a child of God and being out from under the condemnation of sin is, is that we know and we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He has come into the world to save us. And He's given us an understanding, it says, that we may know Him that is true. Jesus came to show us the Father, that we may know the true one, that we may know what it really means to be one of God's instead of of the world. And then it says, and we are in Him. 
We are in Him that is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. We call closing this book on 1 John with final words given by John in the very last verse, very last verse of 1 John chapter 5. And here's the closing comment. Little children, that's what he called his disciples. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols are everywhere. Sometimes it's our money. Sometimes it's our job. Sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's that. But keep yourself from those. Have one person in front of you, and that's Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for all of these wonderful truths that you've provided us in it. We're thankful for the writings of the Apostle John here in 1 John. We're thankful for the encouragement that's given us and telling us about the way to heaven. We pray, Father, that we've learned, that we've made some changes in our lives to be more committed, more dedicated, greater faith that we can walk each day with that confidence that should we die today, we'll wake up in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.